The Double Balance Sheet Problem A Recipe for Disaster Rakesh Rawal is the keynote speaker at the annual banking symposium. The topic for the evening, the double balance sheet problem, and the road ahead. Usually, the symposium attracts a few hundred banking representatives from both state-run and private sector banks, but this time there is a notably palpable mood. Hardly 30 people have turned up and nobody is quite sure how many of them are actually banking reps. Perhaps the organizers got a few of their own people to sit in. In any case, none of this bothers Rakesh. He has a scathing commentary prepared for the event and he is not going to hold back today. To understand what got Rakesh, to this point you have to go back to the early millennium. The year is 2006. The future looks bright and there is considerable optimism in the air. Economists world over are convinced that India will continue to grow at a blistering pace. Large private corporates are showing record profits and there are big expansion plans in line with these growth projections. Banks are lining up to fund these institutions to propel the next wave of economic prosperity. And India is poised to become the fastest growing economy in the world. Unfortunately, within just two years, these expectations would come crashing down. Very few people could see what was coming their way. The financial ecosystem powering the largest economy in the world, the United States of America, broke down. The fallout was called the global financial crisis. By this time the world had already become increasingly interconnected and it didn't take long for the ripples to reach Indian shores. Soon afterwards, India's growth prospects took a massive hit. 2008 was the year of reckoning for most people. You see, the corporates borrowed under the assumption that the good times would keep rolling. They made future projections based on these assumptions. And when prospects soured, they were left with little to no demand and a massive debt burden. At this point, they should have thrown in the towel and closed down operations. But no, they kept borrowing more to stay afloat. The banks now had two choices. Force the corporates to pay up or cut funding, in which case the banks would have to declare them in their accounts as non-performing. Although this would have been the more prudent measure, banks would have had to take a short-term hit on their profits a big no-no in these circles. So they chose an alternative recourse that involved doling out more loans in the hope that the good times would eventually return. Unfortunately, that did not happen. And finally in 2016 banks were forced to own up to the harsh reality. By this time, they had stretched themselves too thin. One look at their finances and you knew they were in absolute shambles. Then the funding stopped and corporates too had to own up to their misdeeds. Some of them were declared bankrupt, others continued to live on life support. People who had a front receipt to this great unraveling referred to it as the double balance sheet problem considering the balance sheets of both the banks and the corporates were now in ruins. But beyond the silly semantics, the problem would also have other grave implications for the growth story of this country and within just two years the chief economic advisor would set out to explain the problem in much greater detail. The investment problem. Show me the money. Back in Delhi, preparations are underway to put together the economic survey for 2017 to 2018. Arvind Subramanian, the chief economic advisor has quickly gained a favorable reputation for being one of the few people trying to make the cumbersome document accessible to lay people. However, for this year's version, he has an important task ahead of him to explain India's bizarre investment slowdown and whether to prioritize this over another important consideration, the savings slowdown. To understand the relative importance of the two terms and Arvind Subramanian's interest in the subject matter we have to understand the role they play in spreading the growth engine of this country. When an entrepreneur makes an investment in building a small enterprise, it has a ripple effect on the economy. The input he uses to build his product service might benefit another firm. The manpower he hires eases unemployment pressure, the money he borrows aids the banking 
sector so long as he is prompt with his interest payments and as the small enterprise grows in size, the influence only magnifies in stature. This effect is partly what drove the great economic boom of the early millennium. However, private investment is now losing steam. With the finances of large corporates already in shambles, most of them are incapable of undertaking any meaningful expansion. The ones capable of meaningful expansion are running at low capacities because they seem to have made grave errors in forecasting demand especially the ones that undertook wanton expansion before 2008. And when corporate profit takes a hit, employee wages suffer and growth in household income inevitably plateaus after a while. This creates a vicious cycle that keeps halting growth every step of the way. Although there are still pockets in the private sector that don't seem to be affected as much, large enterprises including infrastructure, real estate and steel could be doing much better than they currently are. Also, when you have weak corporates reeling under pressure you would want them to die out gracefully so that a new breed of private enterprises can replace the old guard. However, this hasn't happened. The old bloc continues to live under life support, begging for more money, bailouts, despite having no reasonable chance of recovery. This does two things. 1. It impedes the entry of new players and 2. It affects the profitability of other financially healthy incumbents, who by the way could have made meaningful contributions if it weren't for these blood-sucking parasites. And to top it all off we have weak banks that are now less willing to disburse loans to new players in the same space making progress all the more difficult. So private investments, in all likelihood, will continue to remain muted until the old guard wins up or the banking sector magically turns healthy once again. The last grand idea is for the government to come up with the money to kickstart growth through public investments. The central government has been spending on things like roads, railways, and the like to compensate for the drop in private investments. Unfortunately, this hasn't exactly worked out either because unlike the private sector, the government is not very efficient in allocating funds to its most useful purpose, leading to wasteful projects. Think Air India a loss-making enterprise that keeps guzzling cash and preventing its more efficient private sector counterparts from achieving their true potential. Second, governments usually spend more than they earn anyway, so long as they can keep with certain self-prescribed limits. However, off late, government spending has gone so far out of control that they have had to delay paying out money to essential sectors. I am looking at you Food Corporation of India just to stay within these targets. This isn't good practice because, at the end of it all, postponing payments only delays the inevitable, meaning future government spending will have to be curtailed. So where exactly are the investments going to come from, unless the private sector rebounds? Well, nobody knows for sure. In any case, the Economic Survey 2017-2018 to was released amidst much fanfare, not least due to the contents of the book, but the pink cover binding it. The significant gender issues plaguing the Indian economy. At this point it would be prudent for us to end this story because after all, everybody is blaming investments for this crisis. But that's only hogwash. The investment dilemma is only half the problem. The other half is hiding inside your bank account. The savings slump. Spend spend spend. 800 miles away. Professor Raghavendra is about to begin his class on savings. The agenda is very simple to explain the role of household savings in an economy using the Indian example. He draws two large graphs on the blackboard and embellishes it with some more details. There is almost deafening silence inside the large hall. It seems as if everyone is convinced that the class is going to be another snooze fest, but within about five minutes of the lecture, things take a very interesting turn. Usually, people think of household savings as something that helps you deal with unforeseen expenses. However, savings is much more than just that. What most people don't realize is that some of this savings usually translates to investments down the line. 
the most popular choice used to be real estate. Indian consumers often poured money into buying or building properties when savings hit a certain critical point. Unfortunately, as property prices started inching upwards and eventually moving out of reach, savings too had to move elsewhere. Some of it went to the financial sector. Remember the mutual fund Sahiha campaign or even the Yandhan program? People with bank accounts chose to invest in mutual funds and the ones without a bank account decided to open one. Either way, people finally had an avenue to save and invest money in the financial sector through bank deposits or mutual funds. This money then moved into companies who then likely used it to create goods and services. When fund managers purchase stocks and bonds issued by corporations, firms are indirectly using your money to fund these institutions so that they can produce more and aid growth. So higher savings most definitely translates to better economic prospects. However, there is a problem. India's household savings, as a percent of GDP, has been plummeting. The question then is why? One theory that has attained significant traction is that this is simply a byproduct of falling wages. Considering private sector corporates are some of the biggest employers in this country, them not doing so well would have an obvious impact on salaries and that would trickle down to savings rather quickly. So then, the only sustainable way to boost savings would be to ensure that there is always a flourishing private sector in tow. Of course, you could implement policy measures to boost savings, but the overwhelming consensus is that you could find a more long-term solution by promoting investments as opposed to initiating policies to boost savings. In fact, this is an argument that is well documented in academia and something that Arvind Subramanian refers to in the economic survey, as well i.e. savings go hand in hand with economic prosperity, and the key to achieving said prosperity is to boost investments. But it still doesn't seem to fully explain the precipitous decline in household savings. This is when economists started making another radical assertion. Perhaps consumers were using some of these savings to fund short-term consumption by more biscuits, underwear, cell phones, you name it. Could this be the reason why India continued to grow despite the double balance sheet problem? The investment slowdown, the real estate slowdown, the savings problem etc. Could it be that this short-term consumption was propelling growth all the while? Well, there's only one way to find out. Consumption engine. The final gambit fails. Most countries that have achieved large spurts in growth have done so on the back of investments and exports. The reason is rather simple. The produce and consume mantra can sustain growth within an economy only up to a certain point. Beyond this, you need to look outwards, far away from home. For sustainable growth, produce and ship, export, ought to be the recurring mantra, China managed to achieve double-digit growth by doing just this. For decades they had to rely on exports to get the ball rolling. However, political climate outside of India is increasingly becoming wary of globalization. Trump wants to close the country's borders. He's already sent warnings to India as well. And many world leaders are now walking the same line. This shift in ideology poses a serious threat to India's aspirations of becoming an export hub. In any case, India's growth in the past few years wasn't really being driven by exports or investments. Instead, growth primarily came from our country and consuming more as each day went by. As savings rate continued to plummet, the average Indian consumer kept spending and spending until one day he could spend no more. The consumption story that formed the basis of India's economic boom over the past few years is now faltering. The economic engine is now running on fumes. Many people had warned about this possibility. They fully knew that growth aided by consumption was always going to be unsustainable, and to be fair, multiple agencies including the government have been trying to revive investments. Alas, despite their best efforts, not a lot has changed. 
the consumption gambit has now turned inconsequential and the signs are there for everybody to see. We need an intervention, structural reforms, a massive overhaul. Until then, all we can do is hope and pray that the Indian consumer can bail out this country one last time again. Thanks for watching this video. Be a part of our ever-growing community. Please like, share, comment this video. Press the bell icon to get instant updates from our channel.